This is The Point on CAI. I'm Steve Junker. It's Friday, the 16th of February. This is our local news roundup. We'll be discussing the week's top stories with reporters and editors from around the region. Today on the program, we'll be hearing from CAI's Eve Zukoff and Jeanette Barnes. We'll speak with Brooke Kushwaha at the Vineyard Gazette and Ryan Bray at the Cape Cod Chronicle. We'll hear from Ed Miller at the Provincetown Independent and Josh Balling at the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror. CAI's Patrick Flannery will check in with our Statehouse reporter Katie Lannon. And we will speak with Anastasia Lennon from the New Bedford Light. Now to some of the news around the Cape, the coast, and the islands. We know now which fishery is responsible for the death of a North Atlantic right whale that washed up on Martha's Vineyard late last month. CAI's Eve Zukoff has been following the story. She joins us now. Hi, Eve. Hi, Steve. Eve, there was gear, and we mean like fishing gear mm. or rope, or found wrapped tightly around this right whale's tail. This week, you learned where that gear came from. Yes. So officials say that it came from trap pot gear, meaning lobster gear, from Maine state waters. Uh, The whale, we kind of knew this from her movements. She was traveling through the state waters, through Maine, to get up to Canada, where she was first discovered with this entanglement that she then carried for about 17 months that just got tighter and tighter and stayed quite tight as her skin kind of grew around it. And she died of these chronic entanglement wounds. And officials said they figured this out because uh, they were, and this is incredibly rare that they're even able to do this, but they were able to recover a ton of the entangling gear that killed her. Uh, And they found these purple zip ties on the gear. States are now required, um, state fisheries are required to mark their gear with state-specific colors. Massachusetts is red and other states is silver, uh, you know, it goes on. Maine's is purple. So it was pretty clear um, that this this is that's where she got entangled. So why is knowing where the whale got entangled such a big deal? We know the whales are getting entangled in lobster gear up and down the coast or have the potential to. Why knowing which fishery? Well, I mean, one of the things that it tells us is that gear marking works. Uh, For a really long time, lobstermen did not mark their gear with any kind of state-specific color for this purpose. But when you have that information about which fishery uh, has gear that is responsible for entangling one of these critically endangered animals, that means we know which fishery may need tighter regulations to protect the species. And kind of by that nature, it exonerates other other fisheries like the Massachusetts lobsterman fishery. You know, I think there's there can often be a lot of finger pointing. Were wasn't a whale that got entangled? Uh, you know, did it face that fate from Massachusetts waters or Maine waters? What does that mean for where stricter uh, regulations on the fishery need to be. So this gives us more information. This gives regulators more information. So uh, obviously this is an accident. Maine lobstermen yes. are just out there fishing, doing their jobs, trying to uh, catch lobsters. What are they saying about the fact that this gear has been traced back to the Maine state lobster fishery? Yeah, Maine lobstermen uh, say that they are deeply, This the association says that they are deeply saddened by the death. Uh, they said they know entanglement in Maine gear is extremely extremely rare. I will add here, some of that is a lack of gear marking. Gear marking is relatively new. So extremely rare. We we really don't, we don't know. We don't have a lot of data. Uh, And also whales are excellent at either shedding gear that still really affects them or they die from entanglements and they just sink in the ocean. We never really know what happened to them. So that's, that's a little bit of a data kind of 
fuzzy area. Um, Maine lobstermen say that they've made significant changes to how they fish over the last 25 years, and they're going to continue that work as they kind of evaluate this new data and evidence, uh, and that they're committed to finding a solution to ensure a future for right whales and Maine's lobster fishery. I feel like we should take a moment right now and just sort of underline how unusual it was this Mm. whale, 5120, that washed ashore in Martha's Vineyard, this young female right whale, Mm. was in such, uh, first off, that it came ashore, as you say, oftentimes this doesn't happen. Whales get entangled or hit by ships and they kind of vanish off the radar. We never see them again. It came ashore and it was still intact. It was mm. rel- it had died not long before, so it was not it hadn't decayed. It was something that you know, and it had the gear still on it. It yeah. was kind of almost like a, you know, it's a tragic scenario, but also kind of the perfect scenario for forensic folks to look at the whale and find out what happened to it and to learn something from the whale. Yeah, and the fact that it was found in January, where we have these cold temperatures to help preserve it, the fact that it washed up on a beach that was accessible to human beings. Like, if it washed up on Nomans off the coast yeah. of Martha's Vineyard, people aren't going to this island of unexploded ordinances necessarily to go look at a whale. So it, it was kind of a perfect storm in... Leg- in um, uh, litigation, the number often cited is that just 2% of right whales can we find the entangling gear that kills them. 2%. So this is like a really valuable data point. And again, the goal is not to target any specific Maine lobstermen. It's just to have more data about where they're facing problems. So what happens next? Now that they have this data, or at least they can identify, they can point to the Maine fishery as saying, well, this particular whale ran into gear you know, somewhere in state waters with the main fishery, the lobster fishery, what happens? What do they do with that? Uh, the pace of everything is so slow in this world, but it is the million dollar question. I, I asked NOAA Fisheries a little bit uh, to tell me more, and they said, this kind of mealy mouthed way, uh, they will include this information in the suite of information that informs our scientific determinations for actions and analysis, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that it, that is a long way of saying. When we have more information about how whales are getting hurt or dying, that is very useful for informing what kinds of protections shape up. And in 2028 into 2029, there will be a huge push for more regulations and and protections to protect whales, uh, right whales specifically. This will be really useful for that. The Tw- other wait, twenty twenty eight. Yes, twenty twenty eight is the timing. And why? Why? Why is that the horizon? Line? That is just kind of the pace of these of these kinds of plans. But so that's four more years. Four more years for a species that we know is critically endangered and um, you know. Yeah, with three hundred members of its population left. But on a more near term scale, one of the ways to prevent entanglements in a very real way uh, that experts um, and, and whale advocates push is for ropeless or on demand fishing gear and. And they say, you know, this needs to this this entanglement could really push Congress to be appropriating more money because on demand fishing gear is incredibly expensive. It needs more money to kind of fund and develop. This could actually push that along. Uh, and that that would be a major deal. OK. At the same time that you've been reporting on this whale 5120 that washed ashore in Martha's Vineyard, more news came in yesterday that another right whale has died. <laughs> what can you tell us about that whale? Yeah, this is the second whale in three weeks, second young female in three weeks to die. Uh, it was found 20 miles off the coast of Georgia. Uh, it was the only calf of a right whale named Pilgrim, a well-known whale who spent a lot of time in Massachusetts waters. Um, 
this is just kind of interesting about kind of the, the family system there. But Pilgrim was seen for the first time with her own mother named Wart, uh, not actually in the southeast calving grounds, but near the Pilgrim nuclear power station in Cape Cod Bay in 2013. And researchers were really worried that she, you know, was born in these cold northeast winter temperatures. They thought she wouldn't survive, but Pilgrim totally defied the odds, just had her first calf uh, at age 10, this whale that's been found dead. Uh, And this family actually is a good representation of what happens to right whales. There are about 30 relatives within this family, and they've collectively experienced at least 77 injuries from fishing gear entanglements and vessel strikes, getting hit by boats. Uh, I want to switch gears here with the time that we have left with you and talk about this growing lawsuit against the manufacturers of PFAS chemicals. What can you tell us about this lawsuit and who's involved? Yeah, there are more than 100 people just from kind of getting exposed to PFAS chemicals through firefighting foam at Joint Base Cape Cod alone in this lawsuit of about 10,000 people. Many of them are veterans and firefighters. It's a national lawsuit. Oh, it's a national lawsuit. It's kind of like a class action lawsuit, but it's technically not. It's a little bit legal jargony. Uh, But yeah, the concern is that firefighting foam made with PFAS has been linked to kidney, prostate, testicular, and other kinds of cancer, other health issues as well. Uh, The hope is to go to trial in the next two years or so here. Um, And there are so many of these clients that I was talking to this attorney, you know, he was saying our clients have leukemia. They have like horrible stage four cancers and they are asking like, what happens if I die before this litigation, you know, settles? Um, And and, uh, they're they're trying to get them help to pay for their medical bills. So about uh, a hundred or more from the Cape is part of this lawsuit and and the the uh, the lawsuit is attempting to link what happened to them with the risks of their exposure to PFAS. Yeah. A lot of them exposed to the firefighting foams, as you say, at Joint Base Cape Cod. Uh, and do we do they have a sense of what a timeline is for these people in terms of a court case like this? Yeah, I mean the hope is two years, and and you know just to say here, I, I think it's important. When I reached out to 3M, that's one of the you know groups that mm-hmm. they're suing, um, and. 3M said, look, we are our understanding of PFAS chemicals has evolved over the years. So it's actually not really a question anymore of is there a link between PFAS and these cancers? The, the question is, like, how responsible are the companies that made it, mm. you know, in, in these cases? So a spokesperson for 3M said the company will, quote, address PFAS litigation by defending itself in court or through negotiated resolutions. Uh, and it does seem to be leaning that way. And I think for a lot of these people, they're hoping that after they go to trial in two years, those settlements will start rolling in. That is CAI's Eve Zukoff. Eve, thank you. Thank you. This week, CAI's Jeanette Barnes reported on a sudden change of plans for the proposed apartments at the former Twin Brooks Golf Course in Hyannis. The plan prompted a lawsuit and a lot of debate about the merits of housing versus open space. Jeanette joins us now with that story and more. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, Steve. Let's talk about the news that broke this week. What's the latest on this 40-acre property in Hyannis? Well, we learned that the apartment plan as it was, that plan that had drawn a lot of debate, is not happening, um, at least on this piece of land. And that's because a new buyer now tells us they have a contract to purchase the property. Um, And the buyer is the Riverview School, uh, which is a school in Sandwich for students who have complex learning challenges. Um, It has both boarding and day students. 
And right now they are serving ages 11 to 21, but they want to add programming for older students. And um, that's one of the main reasons they are acquiring this Twin Brooks property. Um, I talked with the head of school there, Stuart Miller, and he says right now um, students kind of hit an arbitrary cutoff for, um, for being part of the Riverview School when they turn 21. They can't stay at the school after that. Um, and he wrote a letter to the school community saying that uh, a lot of students and their families experience kind of a feeling of falling off a cliff at that point in terms of their relationship with the school. So the plan is to develop some kind of programming for people 22 and over um, and to do it there in the west end of Hyannis where that property is. Do, do you have any specifics about what Riverview is planning to build there in that site? Actually, no. So uh, Miller said this is new programming and they're just starting to develop it. They're going to be figuring out what they're doing for that uh, that 22 and over group. Uh, so he did not have specific plans to share about uh, what they'll be doing on the property in terms of any construction or anything like that. Uh, they are expecting to close on the property in March, though. So uh, plans probably will be moving along after that. Okay, remind us a little bit, some of the context here, why this property in Hyannis is so significant and, and how the developer's apartment plan became so controversial. Sure. So um, it, it was a 40 acres as a fairly large apartment complex that was proposed there, um, 312 apartments, 13 buildings, a clubhouse and a pool. Um, and also the the location, this land is in the west end of Hyannis. It's not exactly the heart of the commercial district. That'd be a bit of a walk, but it's nearby. Um, and people who oppose this apartment plan said, uh, this is one of the last major green spaces in Hyannis and it should be saved for conservation and for recreation for the people in the area. Uh, some of them even envisioned like a more, uh, more of a park atmosphere with things like formal gardens and a carousel and things like that. Um, so opponents organized a group that's called Save Twin Brooks. And then separately from that, the Barnstable Land Trust put a lot of work into this issue as well. They created a sort of a vision uh, document for what they thought should go there. And one thing they said is they wanted to help the town of Barnstable plan for open space in a proactive way and that this property should be part of that rather than just reacting to development plans. Uh, so all those folks turned out at meetings to make public comments, but also they weren't the only ones doing that. There were plenty of people giving testimony at those meetings who told the story of how difficult housing is on Cape Cod, the high prices, you know, the scarce winter rentals, um, landlords <clears throat> selling property and so forth. So I think because of the size and location of this particular property is really how it became kind of a symbol of that mm. debate. There was a lawsuit that was ongoing, at least until this news broke, right? That's right. So the opposition group Save Twin Brooks, uh, along with two other plaintiffs, sued the Cape Cod Commission and the developer Cortera is the name of the company. And the, that lawsuit uh, was over the commission's decision to approve a development plan for the property. I tried to tried to reach Cortera this week and I didn't hear back. But uh, as, as of November, when I talked to Dan Lee, who's a division president there, he said at that time they were still fully committed to the apartment plan, mm. uh, even though the lawsuit had created some delays. So this is a big change. What kind of reaction have you heard from the people in the community? Well, members of Save Twin Brooks, of course, are thrilled that that complex isn't going in there. Uh, I talked with Angela Rutzik of Save Twin Brooks, and she says um, 
they view the Riverview School as as a longtime Cape Cod institution, which it is, as in uh, a group that they think, she says, has a commitment to things that the Cape values. Um, but like the rest of us, she didn't really know exactly what Riverview is planning for that site, how much open space may or may not be part of that plan, and so forth. So she says, uh, Save Twinbrooks is hoping to work with the school to protect some of the natural resources on the property. Um, other people in the community are saying it's too bad that apartments won't go there because the Cape needs the housing. Um, one thing I want to mention, too, though, is that this this resolution for this particular property um, still leaves a big concern unaddressed here. And that is kind of a larger question, something raised by the Barnstable Land Trust and others, which is that uh, similar properties across Cape Cod remain very attractive to developers because they're open land, but they're also kind of legally considered developed um, and therefore have limited protection. So there are things like golf courses, um, in some cases, agricultural property, summer camps and things like that. So the question is, you know, which of those properties that still exist on the Cape might really serve the community for housing that's very much needed and which ones should be protected through a planning process uh, before the next battle over some specific development occurs. CAI's Jeanette Barnes. Jeanette, thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, Steve. This is the News Roundup on The Point. I'm Steve Junker. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll speak with Brooke Kushwaha of the Vineyard Gazette. Stay with us. This is the News Roundup on The Point. We're talking about the top local stories of the week with reporters and editors from around the region. I'm Steve Junker. If your body starts to fail and you need an organ transplant, it's often a long process fraught with stress, and it can be even more so if you live on an island. Brooke Kushwaha of the Vineyard Gazette joins us with this story. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Brooke, you profiled a number of vineyarders who are in this predicament, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But first, kind of a broader picture here. Organ transplants are becoming more and more common with numbers growing every year. I didn't know this. I didn't know this either. It was one of the more shocking things that I discovered upon um, working on this piece. Uh, we've had 11 straight years of um, of record-setting organ transplants, which is a little concerning. Uh, concerning, but also means there's opportunity for people who, who need organ transplants, I would imagine. So just to give a number, uh, more than 40,000 last year nationally, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And on the island, um, there's uh, dozens of people who have received transplants recently or are seeking transplants. You uh, spoke to a, a number of folks who are in this situation. Tell us a little bit about one of them. Tell us about Jessica Mason. Yeah, so Jessica Mason was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder uh, nine years ago, and uh, she's fairly healthy um, for someone with uh, failing kidneys, but her condition could deteriorate at any moment um, uh, to the point where she'd have to go on dialysis. And at that point, it's really a matter of months um, until she's she can find ideally a, a kidney and receive a transplant, but it's it's really a precipitous um, kind of decline. 
I think one of the things that your article underlines here that seems so specific to this condition is that if you need an organ transplant, it often falls on the patient to advocate for finding a donor or for uh, letting the community know that they're in this predicament. And, and you think about somebody who's already uh, you know, fighting a medical condition, and now they have to uh, almost create a social profile around this. Is that, That's kind of how it's described. Yeah, that, that was another really interesting piece that I, I think has, has changed definitely in the past decade and maybe has contributed in some way to the rise. But um, ordinarily, um, kind of the default option is to get an organ from a deceased donor, uh, in which case you have very little time and uh, agency over when that organ arrives and uh, the wait list could take years. But with a live donor, uh, you have to source from your own network. The hospital won't do it for you. Um, and that's where social media comes in for a lot of patients. So a lot of patients letting people know that I'm in need. I'm, I have this condition. I'm in need of a donor and hoping that somebody will go come forward to, to help them with that. You also point to uh, some of the challenges of being on an island and facing this condition. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so... Um, like I said, with a deceased donor, you have um, very little control over when, uh, where you are on the list and when an organ that may be a match uh, comes in. Uh, often hospitals give you only a few hours notice before you have to go under the knife. Um, and even then they could back out if, if there's a complication or they find that the organ isn't the right fit or they find a better fit. Um, and all of that is completely uh, exacerbated by the fact that when you're on an island, you have to get on a ferry and drive. You, you need every second um, just to be able to travel to the hospital where they can perform this procedure. Uh, so there's this challenge of getting off the island in, in short order when something happens. And then there's the the other side of the process, which you were also describing, which is you can find a living donor, which Jessica Mason, who we were speaking about earlier, has done. She's identified somebody or somebody's come forward to say, I would uh, be a living donor for this process. And then that it, it, it's not like you just walk in the next day and make this happen. It's been a long, long process to find out if this is even a potential match. Yeah, and uh, what's unique about Jessica Mason's situation is that she it's not yet urgent for her. She is not on dialysis, so she has a little more time. Um, and for that reason, uh, her potential donor, uh, all of the tests to determine her eligi eligibility took place over a year. There wasn't any, there wasn't as much of a sense of urgency. Uh, in other cases, uh, those tests, which um, about a day of testing at MDH and I, I was told about 10 hours of testing total otherwise, uh, that could be condensed on a much quicker timeline uh, if needed, which is often the case. Uh, it's fascinating article with actually a, a number of other folks on the island profile there. Folks can find it at thevineyardgazette.com. Brooke Kashwaha, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Steve. Property owners in Orleans have just one month to tie into the town sewer, after which they face potential fines. Now the town is offering the possibility of a deferral in that process. Ryan Bray of the Cape Cod Chronicle joins us with this story. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Steve. Ryan, how much are the fines that people are facing here? Just so you have a, uh, people have a dollar idea to put to this. 
Yeah, uh, they're, they're significant. Um, you know, people have had about a year come March 16th, uh, almost to the date, to, to connect. They've received numerous notifications. So potentially, if that date comes and you haven't made your connection, um, they could potentially be looking at daily fines of $250 for every day they're not in compliance. Uh, so this is not small money. You can do the quick math and see how it really adds up. Um, so the town is really uh, doing everything in their power to kind of encourage people uh, to make those connections by March 16th. How many property owners are in this position needing to connect to the town sewer or facing a fine? Do you have a sense? There's about 1,100 connections that need to be made in the downtown sewer area, which is the first phase of sewering um, that Orleans has undergone. Um, there is there aren't actual numbers to say how many people have connected, how many people because the one of the tricky things is every but you know people are in various stages of completion, and this is something the board of uh, water and sewer commissioners and the board of health have talked about is there are kind of two categories. There are those that have been in contact with the town that they've been you know they're working toward making their connection and they just might not be able to do it by March 16th. Um, and that's because there's really, a, a, you know, engineers and contractors to do the work are in high demand. Um, but then there's another category of people who just, despite all the notifications, just the town has not been in contact with them about their connections at all. And so what they're trying to do is, is create a system where people can defer uh, and get an additional six-month extension to make their connections uh, by filling out a form. Um, what the town really doesn't want to do is start writing fines. Right. The fines are really uh, the fines are really a means of just trying to encourage people to connect um, on time. Um, but there is a process now for people who aren't going to make that March 16th deadline to to defer. And to get a deferral, would folks have to reach out to town hall? Yeah, there's a form on the town website. Um, it's fairly simple. It's it's really just asked for your name, you know, your contact info, your address. Um, but, you know, one important criteria is you also have to provide supporting documents such as a contract with an engineer that shows you've at least started doing the legwork to make your connections. They, they want to see you're making a good faith attempt to, to get this done. And that's really all the town's looking for. And remind us what the date is that folks in Orleans have to, to get a deferral by. Well, again, the, the date is March 16th. Um, so that they're really working off of that date. So if you're not going to make that connection by that time, you need to get that, that form in, uh, before that date. Um, you know, otherwise there is the potential again of these, these pretty steep daily fines uh, for those that just don't, um, take any action whatsoever. But again, this is the town is not, you know, trying to penalize people, but they do want people to, to really take this seriously and, and get connected. It's Ryan Bray of the Cape Cod Chronicle. Ryan, thanks. All right, Steve. Thank you. Beach grass is one of the best natural defenses against coastal erosion, a problem that is increasing with the impacts of climate change. But beach grass doesn't have to be naturally occurring. Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independence brings us with brings us the story of a Cape Cod farmer who grows it on his farm as part of his livelihood. Hiya, Ed. Hi, Steve. 
So often we think of farm crops as something that's kind of done growing when it's harvested, but that isn't the case with this beach grass. Tell us about Tim Friary and and how he's been doing this for decades. Yes. Um, so a lot of us know Tim Friary as the guy who runs the Cape Cod Organic Farm on Route 6A in Barnstable, where he raises pigs and grows the turnips that the pigs like to eat. And he also grows potatoes and other crops. But about half of Friary's farm production, you know, Amophila brevilligulata, which is Cape American beach grass, and it's used for erosion control. He's been growing it for uh, 35 years, he says. And it goes to landscapers, architects, homeowners, and the Cape Cod National Seashore. Um, And Friary also installs it. He says he's placed it in every single town on Cape Cod and sold it across the New England coast from Connecticut to Maine. So he grows this on his farm, and uh, there's some nice picture here. You can see it's kind of grown in two long rows, and then it's gathered into bundles like stalks, I would say, or like long straws that are uh, transported to wherever it's going to be planted, and they're planted kind of... in holes in the ground, almost like hair plugs, right? They're just kind of stuck well, into it, the ground. That's exactly right, yeah. It, you know, we think of beach grass as something that just grows wild. Um, but uh, you've probably come across places on the dunes where you see these hair plugs, and um, they've been planted there. It turns out that um, seagrass is is really the the only native vegetation that holds the the cape together in high winds at the coast, which is you know what we have here in in, uh, in extreme form, really. Gordon Peabody runs a company called Safe Harbor Environmental Services, and um, Cape Cod Organic Farm is one of his main suppliers of beach grass. He um, uh, Peabody says that. The grass uh, works by reducing the wind velocity and creating turbulence that causes sand to drop down around the grass. And so it it actually builds up the dune rather than letting the wind, uh, you know, blow it away. The rootstalks of the grass extend down 20 feet into mm. the, the sand. And so it, they really work to, to hold the dunes together. One of the things uh, also in this article, there's so much that's in here that's really neat and interesting, is that this particular type of beach grass, which is you know identified as a native beach grass and is uh, supported by the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture as a, an appropriate intervention for these coastlines, it comes from a very specific place on Cape Cod, and this is used all over New England now. Yes, that's right. So the the species um, is called American beach grass, but the National Resources Conservation Service tacked the word cape onto it because they were looking for the optimal grass for erosion prevention on the eastern seaboard. And they chose one that they found on Sandy Neck in Barnstable because of its wider leaves. And so it, it works better to knock that sand down out of the wind. So uh, the pl- plants from Sandy Neck actually provided the seeds for the grass that 
Tim Friary now grows and sells all over New England. And the the planting season for this is not exactly what you might expect. It's actually a lot of work gets done in the winter months. And, and yes, in the winter. So Friary actually plants his uh, grass at his farm in March, and then he harvests it from October through April, right through the winter. The the planting of the the stems or combs they're called actually happens during the winter. It's a delicate process. The sand really has to be just right, not too wet and not too hard. They're, the stems are planted six to nine inches deep. The deeper sand offers more stable temperatures and moisture for the roots to develop. You can read more about it on the in the Provincetown Independent online or out of your newsstand. Ed Miller, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. This is the Local News Roundup on The Point. I'm Steve Junker. We're talking about the top local stories of the week with colleagues in the print and digital media. When we come back, we'll check in with Josh Balling of the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror. Stay with us. This is the Local News Roundup on The Point. I'm Steve Junker. We're talking about the top local stories of the week with colleagues in the print and digital media. On Nantucket, the restoration of a cranberry bog just got a big boost. Josh Balling of the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror has the story and joins us. Hi, Josh. Good morning. The name of this cranberry bog is evocative. It's called Windswept Bog. Tell us about what's happening here. Sure, and it's actually not the restoration of the bog. The bog uh, cultivation has been halted, and it's the restoration of the previous wetlands on the property Ah. uh, that the Conservation Foundation that owns the property uh, has been pursuing. And again, like you said, got a big boost uh, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service this week, and it was announced that they've been awarded a million-dollar grant uh, to work on that project. Uh, which broke ground this winter, and it's set to restore the former Cranberry Bog off Pulpus Road and hundreds of surrounding acres of natural wetlands to their formal, former state uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, the goals of the project include providing habitat for rare and unique species, uh, restoring wetland flow and connectivity across the entire 230-plus acre property, uh, reducing nutrient loading uh, within the Pulpus and Nantucket Harbor watersheds from uh, uh, pesticides and herbicides, uh, fertilizers, and potentially supporting salt marsh migration as sea level rise, uh, while also maintaining public access and use of the property uh, that has been available uh, since it uh, became a cranberry bog and was purchased by the foundation. Uh, the bog was built in the early 1900s. It was purchased by the foundation in 1980, and cranberries were grown there until the foundation voted to retire cultivation in 2019, when it really just didn't become uh, a viable business anymore, and they were finding it too difficult to maintain uh, higher environmental standards on the property as well. Hmm. Uh, I want to ask you about an, an update to a story that's been going on for a little bit. Last week, a probable cause hearing was held in the destruction of the historic Main Street Fountain was demolished by a speeding truck last October in an incident caught on video. Now a clerk magistrate has decided there's simply not enough evidence for charges. That's exactly right. Uh, clerk magistrate Don Hart determined that um, there wasn't enough evidence, even given the video and uh, uh, what, the, what the police had, uh, to charge a Vesper Lane man in connection with the destruction of the fountain. Uh, police were hoping to charge Michael Holgate of Vesper Lane with leaving the scene of property damage, malicious destruction of property, Uh, vandalizing a historic monument and speeding, but they were simply not able to provide enough sufficient evidence to prove that he was the operator of the truck involved in the crash, Hart determined. 
The Holgate's attorney said that eyewitness interviews by police couldn't identify Holgate as the operator of the truck, uh, nor could they see him uh, driving in any of the video footage. Uh, his attorney also said Holgate had no injuries uh, that he likely would have had had he been driving the truck when it struck the fountain with uh, quite a bit of force, enough to basically destroy the entire uh, fountain and its uh, base and pedestal. Uh, he also said that uh, Holgate did not have the truck's keys in his possession when uh, he encountered police, uh, and based on the fact that it was a company vehicle, uh, any number of authorized drivers could have been operating the truck. Um, Holgate was arraigned on November 2nd, uh, a couple of days after the uh, after the fountain was struck, on charges of operating a motor vehicle under the influence of alcohol and negligent operation of a motor vehicle. Uh, but those charges were brought in relation to an incident in which police encountered him at his Vesper Lane business uh, more than an hour after the fountain was destroyed. Uh, they had followed a trail of fluid left by the truck to uh, the Holgate's laundry business from the scene of the crash, and they were investigating the damaged truck, uh, which was registered to Holgate's company in the driveway when Holgate arrived in a different vehicle uh, that was also registered to the business. And according to the police report, uh, Holgate abruptly stopped the van that he was in uh, and was largely incoherent when speaking to the officers, which is why he was charged uh, with the charges he was. Mm. Uh, I want to ask you something a little bit off topic here. Uh, Island has a new football coach, the high school. It's uh, not Sconset regular Bill Belichick. It is not. It is not. Uh, much as uh, I think a lot of uh, a lot of Nantucket uh, Whalers fans and uh, maybe even Patriots fans would have hoped, uh, they've decided <laughs> to go a little bit younger. Uh, they've gone with a with a 24 year old assistant coach that's been with the team for the last couple years. Uh, maybe they feel he can relate to the uh, the high school players a little bit better. That is Josh Bowling of the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror. Josh, thanks so much. Thank you. A medical network with ties to the South Coast is in financial straits, and voters this year will weigh in on whether to legalize psychedelics in Massachusetts. Those two stories are connected only by the conversation that Morning Edition host Patrick Flannery had with our Statehouse correspondent Katie Lannon, and here it is. Good morning, Katie. Hey, Patrick. Good morning. Governor Healy did not hold back this week when she addressed patient care and jobs in potential jeopardy at the medical network Steward Healthcare. One of its hospitals, Katie, is St. Anne's in Fall River. Why is Steward in financial trouble and what can Healy do about it? Well, one of the things Steward has said is that they're really hamstrung by the, the way the healthcare system as a whole operates with, they've got a high uh, percentage of patients who get Medicare or Medicaid insurance coverage. So the reimbursement rates aren't as high as those of private insurance. And they have a bigger financial challenge starting out than those big teaching hospitals and things like that that have more negotiating power. But we don't know the extent or when these first started to surface, in part because we've seen state officials say that they haven't been fully transparent about the depth of their money troubles. And so there are Department of Public Health staff who plan to be monitoring all steward hospitals by next week. They started rolling out with four hospitals uh, last month. So they're looking at patient care, at supply levels, at staffing, and listening to, to maybe worker concerns. We don't know ultimately what's going to happen as far as state involvement, in part because we don't know what the future holds for the healthcare system. The Department of Public Health Commissioner under Maura Healy yesterday was saying there, there could be a reorganization, there could be closures. So even though Stewart has said they don't have plans to close Massachusetts hospitals currently, it seems like the state is looking for a, a longer term plan from them. And certainly a lot of people potentially affected throughout Massachusetts by this. Katie, there's a ballot question coming our way in November that would potentially legalize psychedelics in Massachusetts. And 
it appears our state is taking its cue from what's unfolding in a state in the Pacific Northwest, and this would concern psychedelic therapy specifically, right? Yeah, the ballot question that's proposed for this fall would use a, a model similar to what Oregon rolled out when it became the first state to set up a legalized and regulated psychedelic therapy center model with state licensed facilities where you would use or experience psychedelics under under a trained facilitator's supervision. There are, of course, people here on the ground in Massachusetts, local activists who don't like this model, who want to see more of a grassroots approach. In fact, as we've seen, communities like Provincetown vote locally to decriminalize psychedelics. They have asked lawmakers to do a different approach, to go uh, in a way that wouldn't make costs so high for interested customers and that might stay away from outside interests, special interests. Parts of the Cape and Islands, Katie, got up to eight and nine inches of snow this week. It was a legitimate snow day for our region, you might say. Tell us about the snow day at the State House. I see from your Twitter account it was a dusting at best. Yeah, that's really a, a different experience up this way than what, what you folks had down the Cape because we, even though early on schools in Boston were closed, the State House closed, we, we ended up without much snow. So that was a day where some state events had been canceled, some briefings and an event looking at women's heart health were pushed back a day. And, you know, the beat goes on. We we got there eventually, just maybe with some more remote work than otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Better to be safe than sorry, for sure. Finally, Katie, Frederick Douglass Day was celebrated this week. Would you tell us how the state Senate commemorated it? Yeah, the, the Senate this week unveiled a bust of Frederick Douglass that will be displayed in the Senate chamber underneath a, a quote representing some of his work. Part of Senate President Karen Spilka's effort to diversify the artworks on display in the State House, where most of the depictions are of white men. There's only a handful of artwork in the State House representing people of color or women, for that matter. And Katie, is there anything on the status of the bill calling for a Mercy Otis Warren memorial? Big figure here on the Cape. Absolutely. And there's a bill from Cape lawmakers that would call for a permanent memorial donated by a Cape artist. And that bill is on the move, actually. It got uh, an initial approval vote in the House at the end of January. So a couple more votes in the House and a few more in the Senate would be needed to send that to Governor Healy. But it is uh, making some progress through the, the steps of the legislative process. All right. Exciting news to hear. Thanks for breaking that for us from the State House. That's Katie Lannon, our State House correspondent. Katie, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much. And that is CAI's Morning Edition host, Patrick Flannery, speaking with State House correspondent Katie Lannon. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm Steve Junker. Just about anybody can post just about anything online on social media where misinformation competes with real facts every day. A case in point, the recent appearance of a dead right whale on Martha's Vineyard. Anastasia Lennon of the New Bedford Light joins us to explain how opponents of offshore wind have been spinning conspiracy theories about this whale's death and other efforts to mislead. Anastasia, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Steve. Our reporter, Eve Zuckoff, has covered this whale death extensively, the whale known as 5120. I know that you spoke to her in reporting your story. Can you tell us, start maybe by telling us how this particular whale seems to have been incorporated into a larger anti-offshore wind narrative with these conspiracy theories kind of woven in? Yes, yeah, so... Uh... 
whenever a whale has washed up or been found dead, which has been happening a lot, NOAA Fisheries has talked about called unusual mortality events that have been happening. And so with the building up of offshore wind, the survey work that's been happening, the construction that's been going on, um, people who are largely opposed to offshore wind um, have been connecting these deaths of these whales to offshore wind development and survey work. So unsurprisingly, that's what I saw happening, the conversation on social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, when this right whale was found on Martha's Vineyard late last month, which is that you know it died from offshore wind development and that's to blame. Uh, when, when we see that uh, there is very clearly some rope entangled around the whale and, uh, you know, the, the official necropsy results are pending and we, we don't know for sure the official cause of death, but clearly rope was involved. But then you have people on social media that were denying the presence of the rope or saying that it was planted and that, you know, Noah Fisheries is lying and the media is lying about the rope. So, yeah, a lot of misinformation uh, was going around about this whale. Some of this larger misinformation being sort of employed this way, as you point out, arises from the very nature of the scientific process. Science is very deliberate about leaving space for uncertainty and for the unknown, and it acknowledges when all the answers have not been verified. And in some ways, that's exactly one of the things that people who traffic in misinformation seem to be exploiting here. Yep, I, I definitely agree with that. And um, as you noted, there really is a lot of uncertainty about offshore development, especially in the U.S., because it's not happened here yet. And uh, researchers will be the first to tell you all these research and knowledge gaps we have of all, all this data we need to collect, all these questions we have, and how we can prioritize that. And we need funding to answer these questions. But so there are legitimate concerns to offshore development, questions about the impacts it may or may not have. But where you have scientists saying, we don't know yet, I, it could be X, Y, or Z, um, what I've seen is opponents to offshore wind development sort of drawing their own conclusions and saying, well, this is what's going to happen when we don't know that's going to happen. What do we know about the groups and the motives of the people behind some of the misinformation efforts, specifically around uh, the anti-offshore wind effort? Yeah, so I will say it's some of them do have legitimate concerns. Some are from local areas that are going to be impacted by wind development or they'll have cables coming online. And so there are groups that have concerns, uh, but researchers have linked some of them to conservative think tanks um, that have received funds from fossil fuel interests. So there's sort of this like interwoven network um, of, of sort of, they all have a common enemy and some of them are more grassroots, but others um, seem local, but they, you know, have the backing of large, uh, larger groups that have been, you know, pushing against climate change efforts or, uh, you know, the push for renewable energy. One of the things that uh, folks have fastened on here is has to do with pile driving, the, the way that mm-hmm. the, these um, offshore wind turbines are f- fixed into the seabed is by driving yeah. these piles into the, the ground. And they've focused on this as a potential impact uh, at detriment to the whales. Explain what they're saying and, and why there's a gap between what they're saying and, and what's actually happened. Yep, so pile driving, it is noisy. It's noisier than other work that happens, you know, bones. So scientists have said that uh, it's something they're aware of. It's why developers have to use mitigating measures. They have to use protective species observers. So 
they can't pile drive if a whale is sighted by sight or they use acoustic technology to to see if it's present but also that's why they're not allowed to pile drive during certain months of the year so right now for example uh, Vineyard Wind hasn't conducted pile driving, which is you can sell these turbine foundations since the end of December. And it has an agreement with NOAA Fisheries that it will not pile drive until at least May. And so an example of misinformation that I saw was a group based in New Jersey, not even Massachusetts, um, were saying it's fact that pile driving for Vineyard Wind has been going on, you know, as this whale washed up on Martha's Vineyard. When that hasn't happened, pile driving has not been conducted because it's not allowed to be conducted because it is noisier. So there there could be impacts from pile driving, uh, but that's also why there are mitigation measures in place and restrictions put in place as to when developers are allowed to conduct that, that part, that aspect of construction. Briefly, what did you hear from offshore wind folks when you reached out to them about the, all this sort of misinformation noise that's out there? So it's something they've talked about already at conferences. They're very aware of it. Uh, I do think it's concerning to them, and they try, I think, to try and counter it, but they acknowledge that uh, the people opposing their projects um, often aren't inclined to believe developers, experts, or even um, you know experts that are part of the government that are regulating and overseeing these projects. So it, it really is a challenge, I think, as is the case with most forms of misinformation beyond offshore wind development is, uh, you know, there's mm -hmm. attempts to address it and present mm -hmm. the facts, but it's a challenge uh, whether people will accept it or not because they don't trust the people that are sharing these facts with them. That is Anastasia Lennon of the New Bedford Light. Anastasia, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. That's our show for today. I want to thank all my guests. A big thanks to Dan Tridel for engineering the program the maestro of slightly obscure music beds. Thanks, Dan. That's it for today. We'll talk to you next week in Woods Hole. I'm Steve Junker. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.